Take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 2, please. Titus chapter 2. Well, it's Mother's Day. A day we appreciate our mamas. We appreciate them every day. But the day set aside to appreciate them especially. Moms are so important. They play such a vital role in our lives and in our society. Growing up in Indiana, I listened to a fair bit of country music. And that is due in no small part to my mother. My father, too. And as I grew older, I grew to like a particular subgenre of country music called outlaw country. Pioneered by artists like Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, Hank Williams Jr. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, if you know anything about country music, especially outlaw country music, you know that some of the biggest themes in country music are trains and prison and trucks and dogs and, of course, mom. That may seem strange that outlaw country music would be so sentimental in significantly featuring mothers, but hey, even outlaws love their moms. And so you have all these songs within this subgenre about mothers. There's a song about wisdom for mothers. Mamas, Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. By Willie Nelson and William Jennings. The tragic reality of mothers who do their best to raise their sons the right way, but their sons make poor choices anyway and find themselves in bad places. That would be Mama Tribe by Mo Haggard. Which goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but... <laughs> I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama Tribe, Mama Tribe. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied... That leaves me only me to blame because Mama tried. Then there's song about a mother who pled with her son to be sensible. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Sensible young men. And this mother was pleading with her son to be sensible. And that song is called Don't Take Your Guns to Town by Johnny Cash. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the song to you, okay? I'm sure John could do a great job on this song, but I didn't ask him to do it ahead of time. A young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down, and his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He laughed and kissed his mom and said, Your Billy Joe's a man. I can shoot as quick and straight as anybody can, but I wouldn't shoot without a cause. I'd gun nobody down. But she cried again as he rode away, 
Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He sang a song as on he rode, his guns hung at his hips. He rode into a cattle town, a smile upon his lips. He stopped and walked into a bar and laid his money down. But his mother's words echoed again. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. Nobody knows this song? Come on. People need to get cultured. I'm almost done. He drank his first strong liquor then to calm his shaking hand and tried to tell himself at last he had become a man. A dusty cowpoke at his side began to laugh him down, and he heard again his mother's words, Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. Filled with rage then, Billy Joe reached for his gun to draw, but the stranger drew his gun and fired before he even saw. As Billy Joe fell to the floor, the crowd all gathered round and wondered at his final words. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. It's a cautionary tale to all sons to listen to your mom. <laughs> well, sadly, young men are known far too often for not listening to their mamas. Young men are notorious for not listening to either of their parents or to other authorities. Young men are known for getting themselves into all kinds of trouble. They're often known for their rowdy ways and for their challenges to authority. Young men want to assert their independence and prove themselves as men. And they often engage in risky behaviors. Some of this is due to a lack of experience in the world and a failure to understand the principle of sowing and reaping that God has placed within the world. If you jump off the roof, you might break your legs. But that doesn't stop young men from trying. Some of this rowdiness and riskiness is due to the undeveloped brains of young men. Sorry, young men. The prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for decision-making and impulse control, continues to develop until around the age of 25. So young men are notoriously brain deficient. <laughs> and society doesn't help this much, for young men are often expected to sow their wild oats as though doing so will somehow get the sin and bad behavior out of their system, and they'll settle down in due time. But if we know anything about sin, we know that it doesn't work like that. You don't get sin out of your system, and you can't sin your way out of sin. Sin can't be sampled out of existence, and sin can't be sampled without consequences. Sin is the great complicator of life. And many a young man found themselves committing sins that followed them their whole lives. Maybe some of you, older men, could testify to that truth. Sin ensnares, sin destroys, and leaves us with guilt and shame and regret. 
The book of Proverbs is largely intended for young men. Though it's certainly beneficial and applicable to us all, as wisdom is, it's given as a manual, though, of wisdom to young men. Because young men need wisdom. Despite your strongest suspicions, young men, you don't know everything. And so, in your youth, it's a time to learn, to listen, and to grow in wisdom. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul addresses these young Christian men of Crete, and he calls them to live in light of the gospel, and to live a life that is sensible. So look with me in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. As Paul now turns his attention to the young men of the congregation. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. This is the word of God. Let's pray again. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning as we open your word and read it, seek to understand it, gain insight from it, and be changed by it. Lord, we pray first and foremost that we would see Christ. He is our greatest need greatest gift that's been given to us. Thank you for his example as a young man who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But more than just an example, he is our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for living the life we as men have failed to live. All of us have failed to live. A life of perfect obedience to the law of God. You lived that life, Jesus. You lived it so that you could go to the cross as a sinless substitute for sinners like us. Thank you that there on the cross you paid our debt and now offer us forgiveness and eternal life simply by faith. What a glorious gospel. Help us to rejoice in that gospel today and to gain wisdom from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see this morning from this passage five gospel-centered qualities for young men to pursue. And before, ladies, you tune me out and say, well, this has nothing to do with me. Well, these qualities actually transfer pretty well to any category, any group, any person, any Christian. It's just that young men especially need to hear these things. All right? First of all, First gospel-centered quality for young men to pursue is to be a young man who is self-controlled. Self-controlled. Here in verse 6, Paul turns his attention to yet another subcategory, subgroup of the Christian congregations scattered around Crete. He writes, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Paul's already addressed older men. He's addressed older women and younger women, and now he's addressing these younger men. And he's grounding all of this moral instruction in the gospel. 
Once again, look with me at the end of this section in which Paul gives instruction about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and household servants. And as he finishes instructions to household servants in verse 10, he ties all of this moral instruction very closely to gospel realities. Look what he says, Titus 2.10. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What is the doctrine of God our Savior? It's the gospel. Adorn it, put it on, wear it like a garment so that others can see it. Make it part of your life. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The change that Paul is calling for, the urging that Paul is calling Titus to do among the young men, is all rooted and grounded in the gospel of God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus has come and died in our place, He's risen again on the third day, and now he gives eternal life and salvation to all who will receive it by faith. He also gives us his Holy Spirit, which is his power working mightily within us, transforming us from the inside out, making us a new creation, new creatures, born again, born from above. This gives, should give all of us hope for change. We can change as Christians. We don't have to be stuck in a rut because the power of God is mightily working with us. And as that is true for all Christians, it's true for these young men. They can live differently in the midst of a culture that had gone to the dogs. Now, who are these young men? What age qualifies you to be considered a young man? Well, when Paul writes this, the term young man could be used to refer to any young male from teenagers to those around the age of 40. So if you're 40 and below, congratulations, man, you're a young man. My condolences to everyone else. (laughs) So it's all those who are in the first half of their lifespans. It's anyone who's not over the hill. You're over 40, you're over the hill. Biblically speaking, I mean, it's spirit-inspired, you know. So this captures a pretty wide age range. It's a special and peculiar time of life. It's a time of life when habits are being formed, when the direction of a life is being set. When the concrete is still wet and still can be easily shaped and molded, at least more easily. Ralph Waldo Emerson recognized the importance of our thoughts and actions in determining our character and the trajectory of our lives when he wrote the following. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. We can see the wisdom in that. The first half of our lives is a crucial time of life when habits are formed and relationships 
are formed, when the direction of your life is being set. So take it seriously, young men. Take this time of life seriously. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says in his excellent little book, Thoughts for Young Men. If you don't have that, you should get it. It's about game day. Short, but filled with wisdom and challenge and insight. Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. Listen to what he says. He says, believe me, you cannot stand still in your souls. You never stand still in your soul. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day you are either getting nearer to God or farther off. So which has it been lately for you? Every day we're either getting nearer to God or farther away from Him. We never stand still in our souls. So Paul calls the young men of Crete to get nearer to God day by day, and one of the first steps for doing this is by being sensible. Sensible young men. Now, if that word sounds familiar, it should. Throughout this section, Paul has called on Christians to lead sensible lives. Same word. Paul even said it was a qualification for pastors, elders, and overseers in chapter 1 and verse 8. An overseer must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. In chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul said older men are to be sensible. In chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says that older women are to teach the younger women to be sensible. Now he calls on Titus to urge the younger men to, to be sensible. So this is the quality that is to be seen in the life of every believer. It's applicable to all of us. Young and old, male and female, all Christians are called upon to manifest a life that is sensible. So what does it mean to be sensible? Well, essentially the word Sensible means to be self-controlled, to be circumspect in the way you live and conduct yourself. It means that you are to manifest a mental focus and, and emotional stability. You're to live a life that is not characterized by impulsiveness or erratic instability. <clears throat> Instead, the Christian is to manifest a life of determined focus, emotional balance, and moral self-restraint. It's to keep your wits about you. It's not to be carried away by your own appetites, your own desires, or by the crowd that would have you living and doing certain things. It's to stay level-headed and even-keeled. And to have control over your appetites and desires. I'm going to quote Ali and Mike, Micah Spansel's great grandpa Hebert again in his helpful commentary on Titus. Isn't that cool? I haven't been so cool. He's like a celebrity. 
The term sensible means that the Christian has his faculties, appetites, and passions kept under control of a sound judgment and an enlightened conscience. It means that morally you don't let the winds just drive you wherever they will. that you have your hand to the rudder. You're in control of your feelings, of your appetites and your desires. Crete was a wild place. It was a wicked place. It was a culture of self-indulgence, a culture where you let your appetites lead you, a culture of decadence, of gluttony, of drunkenness, of sexual immorality, and of dishonest speech. We talked a lot about the, the dinner parties that would be had, and the drinking that would go on, and the after party that would happen, that, where sexual immorality was just common. And young men were invited to come into these places and become men, as it were according to the Cretan culture. It was a culture that valued following the basest and most animalistic of human instincts. Paul has already laid out to us the realities of the culture in Crete in chapter 1. And he quotes from a prophet of their own who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is not a compliment. This is not what we should aspire to. This is what we should avoid. Paul says, For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Young men are particularly prone to giving themselves over to such animalistic desires. Paul is issuing a singular call here to these young men that they not live lives of selfish indulgence, but lives that are sensible, sober, and self-controlled. There's only one direct command to this group in this verse. This is it. There's going to be some more that we're going to see, but this is the command to the young men. Be sensible. Maybe because of that brain development thing, guys can't handle a whole lot. you got to keep it simple, right? Here it is. Be sensible, young men. Don't be carried away by your desires. Don't be carried away by the crowd. Be sensible. A sensibility that's rooted in truth, that's rooted in the way things truly are, that's rooted in the truth of the gospel and the power of God working mightily within you. Be sensible. Be self-controlled. That's the first mark of Christian young men is that they should seek and pursue a life of sensibility. Secondly, they're to pursue being young men who are an example of good deeds. An example of good deeds. In verse 7, Paul issues some particular commands to Titus. So he's switching here from young men in general to Titus 
who is himself a young man at this point. Titus is probably in his late 20s or his early 30s, so he's well within that category of young men. And he's calling Titus here to lead by example. And as he leads by example, Paul's expectation is that other young men are going to follow his example. And so thus, this applies to all young men. And again, as we'll see, it applies to all Christians. We're all to be examples of good deeds. We're all to be living lives that are overflowing with good deeds as a fruit of the gospel in our lives. Titus is to, in all things, show himself to be an example of good deeds. Good deeds feature prominently in the book of Titus. One of the great purposes and results of the gospel is that we would be a people who produce good works. And Paul's going to point this out just a few lines later. Look down in verse 14. He's talking about Jesus here, who gave himself for us, chapter 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for what? Good deeds. The result of salvation that has come to us, the result of us placing our faith and trust in Christ and the, and the regeneration that God has caused to happen in our hearts is that we become zealous for good deeds. We manifest and show that reality that's inside and hidden and can't be seen, we manifest that on the outside by our good deeds. By doing good to others. And now this is in stark contrast to the false teachers who were there in the churches in Crete. The false teachers and their lifestyles of corruption and self-interest Titus 1.16 says about these false teachers that they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They are worthless for good deeds. Why? Because the inside is corrupt, and that inside corruption shows itself outwardly, and they are worthless for any good deed. Not so the Christian. Not so the genuine believer. The believer, on the other hand, has been created by God for good works. Ephesians 2.10, that glorious verse, says that we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, his work of art, his poema, his poem. It's God's work. We are God's work, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why have you been saved? Ultimately, for the glory of God. Why have you been saved and left here? For good works, which glorify God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Our lives are to be characterized by good works. That's not just something that little old ladies do or that Boy Scouts do, it's something that all Christians are to see functioning properly 
in their lives. These good works or good deeds are not the cause of our salvation. We're not saved by our good deeds, by our good works, right? Our good deeds can't save us. Saying that you can do enough good deeds to get you into heaven is not the gospel. That is not the good news. So our good works are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the evidence of our salvation. Good deeds are never the root of our salvation, but they are the necessary fruit of our salvation. So what are these good deeds that we're created for? Well, it's anything that is right in God's sight. Anything that is right and good in God's sight is a good deed. It's anything done in faith. Anything done out of love and obedience for the Lord. It's anything done in love for our neighbor and in Jesus' name. In doing good deeds, the Christian serves as a witness to the world of the transforming power of the gospel. We've gone from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from selfishness and sin to selflessness and service. It's evidence of the transformation God has done within us. Titus was to be an example of good deeds. As a young man, Titus was to exemplify what it meant to be a Christian and to manifest the realities of the power of the gospel through the way that he served others. All human beings are born selfish. Ask any mom. Babies don't care if you're tired. Babies don't care if you've had it. Babies don't care if you want a break. They need what they need, and they need it now. And they're not willing to wait. Likewise, Sadly, often young men are selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, not concerned about the needs of others, but concerned only about themselves and what they can get, what they can get out of the situation. Paul is calling Titus to be an example of something radically different. Be an example of a changed human being, a converted human being, a transformed human being, who's now concerned to help others, who's now others focused, who's now ready and racing to do what he can to help others. Titus was to be such an example of good deeds. The word example here refers literally to a die or a stamp that was used to make copies. It refers to a pattern or model after which other copies are to be fashioned. And so Titus, like all pastors, was to be an exemplary Christian so that other young Christian men, and indeed all other Christians, could pattern their lives after his. Paul himself set just such an example with his own life. In Philippians 3.17, he said, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
me ask you, young men, congregation, Christian, are you a good example to others? Are you an example of good deeds? Are you an example of selfless self-sacrifice? Are you an example of one who's concerned about others and put their needs and concerns ahead of your own? Or do you have a different reputation? A reputation for selfishness, a reputation for trouble, a reputation for rebellion. Are you an example that other Christians can follow and grow from? Or are you a bad example? Christian, you've been created for a purpose, to glorify God through the fruit of good deeds. Get to it. Third, young men are to be those who pursue purity in doctrine. Purity in doctrine. Next in verse 7, we see that Titus was to manifest purity in his doctrine. The word doctrine, there is the word for teaching. It can refer either to the content of the teaching or to the manner of the teaching. And it may very well be that Paul doesn't intend it to be one or the other. But Paul is concerned both for the content of Titus' teaching as well as the manner of his teaching and the manner of his life. Titus' theology and practice was to be pure. Sound. Uncorrupted by greed. Uncorrupted by insincerity. Uncorrupted by craftiness. Instead, it was to be pure, sound, springing forth from an integrity of heart and motive. And again, this is in contrast to the false teachers who were teaching falsehoods and who were motivated merely by self-interest and greed. Titus 1, 10 and 11, Paul warns that there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's the kind of wrong motivation that Titus is to avoid in his teaching and in his ministry. Titus and the other young men like him were to pursue both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. To watch your life and doctrine closely, both in their private lives and their public ministry. Let me ask you, young men, are you growing in your understanding of God's word? Are you growing in sound doctrine and in discernment and in practical holiness? Are you growing in your hatred for sin in your own life and in the world around you and growing in love for God and His holiness? Fourth, young men are to pursue a life characterized by words that are serious. Paul is emphasizing here the importance of dignified speech. The word dignified here refers to soundness or seriousness. There's a gravitas to it. The situation in Crete called for sound doctrine to be delivered with all seriousness. Titus hadn't been called to entertain 
or to keep them laughing, or to tell stories. He'd been called to a serious task that required dignity and special handling. Young men can be prone to want to treat serious things with contempt. To laugh important matters off as no big deal. To treat sacred things as common. Or in an effort to seem relatable to others to speak ingloriously about glorious things. Mark Driscoll former pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I think he's pastoring now in Arizona. Mars Hill doesn't even exist. It blew up. It was destroyed. He was known as the cussing preacher. He was notorious for using expletives in the pulpit to make his point. Presumably under the guise of being real or authentic or passionate, Relatable. Young men are prone to such speech and they are prone to run after those who use such speech. And there was no shortage of young men around Marcy. It was a long line wanting to be just like mine. Paul calls us all to live lives of dignity and seriousness, especially when it comes to handling the glorious truth of the gospel message. Fifth and finally, young men whose speech is healing to others. Verse 8, Paul says that Titus is to be sound in speech that is beyond reproach. The word sound here always has reference in the New Testament to someone who's been healed or has been restored to health. And so Paul is talking about speech here that is restorative, speech that is healing, speech that gives life, speech that strengthens, speech that encourages and builds up and doesn't tear down. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Your words can give life, or they can bring death, so to speak. Young men, in the name of authenticity, can be loose with their tongues, but as James says, the tongue is a fire in the very world of iniquity. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. How's your speech? Do your words give life? Do they heal and restore and encourage and strengthen? The result of this Sanctified speech, transformed speech, is that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. There were opponents in Crete, opponents who did not like what was going on there, who were enemies of the church for a variety of reasons. 
The human heart's natural disposition is to oppose God and to oppose his gospel and to oppose those who follow this gospel. It's therefore natural for unbelievers to oppose us and to oppose our message. But a life that has been transformed by the gospel, a life that manifests self-control, a life filled with good deeds, a life of grace-giving speech will be hard to hate. And those opponents who make accusations against us will find that those accusations aren't credible and are easily refuted by the transformed lives we're leading, by the good deeds we're doing, by the pure speech we're speaking. This is the call to young men. The call goes out, will you answer Young man, will you fulfill God's purpose for your life by following Him wholeheartedly? Maybe you're thinking, I've got plenty of time. I've got a lot of life to live yet. I'll get serious about my faith later. I'll consider these things tomorrow. Listen to these wise words from, again, J.C. Ryle and his book, Thoughts for Young Men. He says, Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Sure, Satan says, do it tomorrow. Good idea. I'm behind you all the way. Tomorrow's better. Tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is God's. Today is the day of decision. Today is the day of wisdom. Today is the day to determine to live sensibly with God's help out of the power of the gospel. Maybe for you, today needs to be the day of salvation. Maybe for you, today needs to be the day of faith, trusting in Jesus alone to save you, to forgive you. Or maybe you just need to say, you know what, today, I'm going to begin afresh. I'm going to begin anew. To live the life God has called me to live as a young man, as a Christian, as a part of what God is doing on this earth. Let's pray again. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and mercy which has granted us eternal life from eternity past. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus was born, born of a virgin, led a sinless life, honored you perfectly with that life, fulfilled all righteousness, and died as a substitute. spotless lamb, sacrifice for us all. Lord, I pray that any here who aren't sure if they're a Christian would make sure today by confessing their sin in prayer to you and trusting in Jesus alone to be their Savior. Lord Jesus, I pray for all the young men of our church 
Lord, how blessed we are with young people. I pray that you continue to do a work in their lives. Grow them to be mighty men of God. Use mightily for you, for your purposes. Make that true of all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name.